Hello, and welcome to Cream of Caroline, the world's most insightful casserole lifestyle podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Today, I am joined by writer John Birdsall, who has spent the last two years researching James Beard for a forthcoming biography, The Man Who Ate Too Much. We talk about Beard's take on casseroles, his life in the village, and irrepressible style and pursuit of pleasure, and how both his gay community and his closeted public persona shaped his life and work. I'm also bringing back hot dogs for dinner with a delicious pot of soup as casserole. It's going to be creamy. What's in the oven? Lentil soup in a casserole found on page 122 of James Beard's 1955 casserole cookbook. To get started, soak two cups of black lentils overnight. Drain them the next morning and place them in a casserole with two quarts of water, a ham bone, one onion stuck with cloves, a tablespoon of salt, a bay leaf, and a clove of garlic. Cover and bake that for two hours at 350 degrees. Reduce the heat to 250 and bake two hours more. You really want to get those lentils nice and silky and creamy. Now, Mr. Beard called for three quarts of water in this recipe. I found that to be way too much, but if you want a more watery soup, you can amplify the water uh, or you can reduce it to make it even thicker. So at this point, remove the ham bone, um, pick the meat, chop it, add it back to the pot along with four sliced frankfurters aka hot dogs listeners who started with the first episode of cream know where i got those dixon's farm stand meats uh ladle into bowls serve with chopped green onions and parsley and a generous dollop of sour cream and that's what's in the oven casseroles and the news meals on wheels is back up and running in victoria texas and this week local seniors can look forward to tuna noodle casserole on wednesday and beef and barley casserole on thursdays and of course all meals come with bread and milk and out pixar's animated short features the company's first openly gay characters there's greg who has not come out to his family and his boyfriend manuel the men are moving in together and the drama centers around a surprise visit from greg's parents who drop by with guess what a housewarming casserole you can watch the nine minute film on disney plus and finally it is national burger month and kwwl in waterloo iowa is giving us all a reason to celebrate with cheeseburger casserole, a recipe shared on its Cooking with Colin segment. All you need is ground meat, though it doesn't specify what kind, onion, garlic, relish, ketchup, mustard, Worcestershire sauce, which I can never pronounce, and processed cheese with some tater tots. And that's your casseroles in the news. Uh, listeners, today we have John Birdsall on The Cream. He is an award-winning freelance writer and the author of an upcoming James Beard biography, The Man Who Ate Too Much. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so glad to finally have you on. You're, you're kind of the, the crown of the season. <laughs> <laughs> but for J- for James Beard, I, I bought this little volume not too long after I started the podcast and have just been, uh, I waited a little while. Some of the recipes didn't seem super approachable. And then with a pandemic, I have lots of time on my hands. <laughs> to, <laughs> what better way to fill it than by making casserole? Yes, yes. That is, that is what I've been doing. How, what have you been cooking at home in the last few weeks? I have been 
uh, well, at first, when the shelter in place happened uh, here in California, I'm in Oakland, so the Bay mm -hmm. Area started pretty early. And um, I kind of started by doing all these really like elaborate cooking projects, you know, like I think as a way of um, calming myself and uh, finding some comfort. You know, mm -hmm. I, like, I made like a three day black mole sauce and um, wow. just kind of crazy stuff like that. My husband started baking bread. It's been a while since he'd done that. And, but now we've sort of settled into a comfortable rhythm, um, very much, uh, in fact, the way James Beard ultimately, um, the, the kind of home cooking that he practiced, which was very kind of simple, thrifty, you know, I buy a whole chicken every week mm -hmm. and cut it up and do various things with the parts, make stock out of the bones, um, you know, give my dog the gizzards. And so right. um, it's this very, I think it's a much older kind of model of household thrift mm -hmm. that I'd, I'd never really practiced until, until now. So, um, um, you did say in a recent essay that beard is the ghost that you cannot banish from your kitchen. <laughs> is that still, is that still applying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, spent uh, a few years doing research uh, for the biography of the mm -hmm. man much. And um, so, yeah, um, sort of recipes, bits of, 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 his, of his comments from letters, um, you know, essays, essays that he wrote, uh, these things are still ringing in my ears. Um, you know, for instance, he would buy Malden flake salt, mm -hmm. which was impossible to get in the U.S. at the time, like in the 1960s. So he would, he would order it he would order 50 pound sacks from Harrods in uh, London. <laughs> and put it in his townhouse? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> really the salt that he liked to use exclusively when he, I mean, unless he was baking. So it's, it's that kind of thing. And then he just loved like ordinary um, ground beef. You know, he loved a seared Salisbury steak, essentially. So something very, like, extremely simple. You know, mm -hmm. he's very attuned to the the simple contours of kind of basic ingredients and kind of using the best ones, the best ingredients he could find, but of typically a very, very simple ingredients for his own for his own cooking. Yeah, my um, so I'm in the village, and my neighbor has been here since she was. It was just, she was born on Christopher Street in a tenement building, so she remembers seeing Beard walk around to the different uh, butcher sh butcher shops, and we would run into him in grocery stores and things like that. Right. Um, yeah, he loved um, Jefferson Market, mm -hmm. uh, which is around the corner from his uh, house on West 10th Street. Um, where he lived from 1959 to 1973. Oh. So across from the Jefferson Market Courthouse, which was abandoned in 1959 when he moved in, and the Women's House of Detention, which was on the other edge of that uh, triangle-shaped block, was still there. Um, and so he taught cooking classes from that townhouse starting in 1959. And he said that... Um, it was kind of inconvenient because his classes were expensive. And so the, the men and women who took his classes tended to be, you know, they live in the Upper East Side mm -hmm. or and come down to the village to take the classes. And um, sometimes the, um, the women who were held in this kind of high rise um, house of detention, they'd be calling down to sort of friends or relatives in the street, in the street through the bars. Um, so it was a little distracting, but he also loved it. 
And, and what else was happening in American culture? Uh, so with casseroles specifically, I think it's 1955. Right. Um, I, I read elsewhere and I couldn't find it again that beer didn't love casseroles in, in, the, in the typically American sense. What right. would have compelled him to release this, this book? Well, I think this book was really driven by the need to, to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, he kind of spent his professional life railing against the, uh, the, the food conventions of the time. So in the 1950s, when he really rose to prominence, food media was dominated by, um, primarily by what was called um, women's magazines, mm-hmm. um, you know, like House and Garden, um, Women's Day. And they had very strong editors, all of them women, and they came from um, home economics backgrounds. And most of the food coverage at the time, except for a very few authors, but most of the food coverage at the time was done sort of hand in hand with big uh, commercial companies. Okay. So, um, you know, a company like um, like Borden, for instance, mm-hmm. they would develop recipes um, at their headquarters, and then they would release them to magazine editors to to run. And you know, it might there might be a real author behind them, or it might be like a made up name like Betty Crocker, who okay, supposedly like an expert in cooking in home cooking who could tell you how to cook efficiently, but also of course you know using Borden products or whatever or whatever products. Um, Beard thought this was horrific. Um, and that it led to a really bad standard of cooking in America. And so his crusade basically was to try and um, subvert this culture of American home ec food writing. Okay. And in, so in his idea about casseroles was to, I think, expand the reader's mind about what a casserole was and what it, what it could be. Um, you know, that it shouldn't be a way to hide uh, cheap ingredients, you know, it shouldn't be a way to um, extend bad or cheap ingredients by using fillers, you know, mm-hmm. oatmeal or breadcrumbs or something like that, but really to celebrate ingredients themselves and um, sort of take a much more kind of French approach um, to cooking in the context of casseroles. So that was, that was really his, his main goal with this little book. Yeah, I've made stuffed calves heart. That was a that was a first for me. Yeah. I also did make the casserole of oxtails with pig's yeah. feet, right. uh, stuffed onions, haddock rabbit, a lot of chicken and rice, um, a sour cream and noodles dish that defied. Uh, I, it just it was like a cup of sour cream, a <laughs> cup of cottage cheese, a quarter pound of. New- I've made it twice though because it's so good. <laughs> And then we talked about over email, the lentil soup uh, that's prepared with ham hock or a, a lamb shank. Right. And then at the end, you slice hot dogs and put it in. Yes. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, Frankfurter's. You it was know, so good. Right. And to be, to, to be fair to Beard, I mean, they would have been ones that he would have sourced and would have wanted his, his, his readers to source from an old-fashioned butcher shop. Um, you know, still um, on the east side, um, even in the 1950s, there were kind of old-fashioned German butchers uh, who still existed there. He used to love to go up there and get, you know, like different kinds of sausages, frankfurters and that. So they'd be a bit more 
I don't know if honest is the word, but um, have a bit more kind of texture and flavor and, right. you know, skins that snapped and, um, you know, they'd, they'd be very old fashioned, um, you know, rather than, a, rather than a supermarket. Yes. I got mine um, from Dixon's Farm Stand Meats and oh, yes, in Chelsea Market. So hopefully I would have met his standards. Yes. But it, they were super silky and reminded my husband and me a little like a almost like a French red beans and rice in terms of like all the smoked meats and I don't know, and the beans and there was like a wallop of sour cream on top. They were really lovely. You know, I mean, really his, you know, James Beard's innovation was to um, sort of create his vision of American home cooking, which is basically French cuisine bourgeoise. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very French model. And kind of early, earlier, on um, in the late 1940s, and certainly with his 1949 cookbook, uh, The Fireside Cookbook, that kind of was his breakout cookbook. Um, he had written three before that, but this one really had national distribution. But his idea was to take these rustic French dishes and substitute some American ingredients. Um, so for instance, you know, smoked American bacon, um, instead of salt pork um, in a recipe, and really to get rid of the French sort of language, you know, the, the, the name of the recipe wouldn't be in French, but he, he'd use an English description for the dish. And he also just through his force of personality and charisma, it would seem, it would seem American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wore mm-hmm. its, its sort of French, French roots very, very prominently. And so, you know, that was really his innovation. And so doing that to casseroles, you know, he could take something like a French daube, a traditional uh, daube or um, a cassoulet or something, sort of simplify it, um, you know, do it with easy to get ingredients in the Mm -hmm. United States, you know, give it an English name, and it would seem like a new dish and uh, a very American dish. And he also had, he threw all manner of things into soufflés. <laughs> yes, soufflés. All, all manner of things. Yes, he did. I mean, they were both a great kind of kind of luxury um, sort of show-off food, you know, like that would be the, the sort of stunning dessert that you would like rush from the oven to the table to your guests. But then it was also a vehicle for leftovers, mm-hmm. which, you know, was firmly in the American tradition, you know, since... The Boston Cooking School, the 1890s, you know, a souffle was something that uh, a careful cook would use to, you know, as a vehicle for leftovers. It was, it was sort of thrift, but with a... With flair. Yes. <laughs> so, and obviously beyond casseroles, Beard seems like a figure that most Americans, or at least in the food world, are familiar with. I live near his house. I've been to dinners. I've been to the awards. Um, Tell me something in your reporting that surprised you. You know, I think overall how we think of him as a person of great kind of charisma, uh, this great public presence. I mean, he was, a, he was a, a household personality in the U.S. for, you know, 30, 40 years. But he was rather uncomfortable around people. He was, he was, he was more awkward um, than, he, than, than he seemed. Um, you know, he had a he had a theater background, and so he did a great job, sort of acting this bon vivant, mm-hmm. full of bravado, full of uh, love for life, which he did have. 
but um, he he disguised his um, awkwardness and shyness, and also um, he had he suffered from lifelong depression, um, and so in his kind of dark dark moments, um, he was he came across as a very different person. Um, and then, of course, the fact that he was gay at a time, right. when, especially to be a cookbook author in the United States um, and to appeal to a wide and probably predominantly more conservative audience. Mm -hmm. It was something that he had to conceal. Um, it was a very complicated open secret because anyone in New York City who knew him, who was in food, knew. It was something that people kind of talked about, um, you know, outside of a circle of close friends. Um, so there was a, uh, a very definite code of how to behave in that situation. You know, you would, you would be a bachelor. You'd be like a confirmed bachelor. Um, you know, and he'd be asked, you know, oh, Mr. Beard, you know, um, how come you've ever gotten married? And he'd, you know, be like, oh, oh, me? You know, who, who would want to marry me? So there was a, a kind of conventional way of approaching it. But, um, you know, as someone especially who invited students into his home for cooking lessons, it was, um, you know, it took quite a bit of um, maneuvering to keep that part of his life hidden, or at least semi-hidden. You know, in his house now, at least, I'm like, anyone walking into that bathroom has to know. <laughs> yeah, the bathroom, yeah, that, the, yeah, the house at 167 West, West 12th Street, um, the Beard House. Yeah, it, strangely, it was a house he didn't, he didn't really care for. Um, you know, he, he much preferred the house on West 10th Street. And um, what we call Beard House now, he's um, one of his friends, uh, Jerry Lamb, uh, who's uh, still around. He lives in, in Portland, Oregon. And he, um, you know, James gave Jerry Lamb just carte blanche to come and decorate the house. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I think to combat the, the darkness of the house, there are a lot of mirrors. And so, yes, the mirrored bathroom, the mirrored bed alcove. Where yes. James slept with the mirrored ceiling. Um, but maybe the students didn't make it upstairs. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, unless you were, you made a connection with him um, or, you know, were more of a friend than a student. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't get to go upstairs. Yeah, and I mean, and I talked to, so I had Lucas Vogler on as well on a previous episode. And because he had to live in the closet for most of America, how has he contributed to queer food culture as we know it today? Or, or is that something that's still emerging as, as we learn about his past and, and about his identity? I think it's still emerging. And I mean, I, I focus quite a bit of, uh, on that subject in my uh, book, The Man Who Ate Too Much. Um, a lot of the book for me was understanding this complicated code of the 20th century of um, people who were lesbian and gay in America and had very radically compartmentalized uh, parts of their, of their, of their lives. Um, and there were things that would never spill over, you know, between boxes, you know, for instance, um, uh, one of the sources from my book um, was a reporter at the New York times in the 1970s even. Mm -hmm. um, it was forbidden to, you know, write about homosexuality unless you use certain terminology in the paper. And he was gay and he 
said there were probably maybe four or five other reporters who he knew were gay, but he said it was so um, terrifying to be exposed, you know, you would lose your job, uh, even in New York City, that he said, you know, even if you went out to lunch together or, you know, met each other outside on the sidewalk, you know, there would never be any acknowledgement, you know, never a wink, never any, any words. It was just, it was, um, these were completely alien worlds from each other. And there was, there was, there was real fear uh, in being, in being exposed because it had huge consequences, uh, could have huge consequences on your life. Right. I think we're still, what we're still understanding, um, and hopefully my book addresses, is how much that fear um, and that silence really um, was able to blossom into something that wasn't overtly queer, but, but that really expressed um, a lot of unexpressed, unexpressible sort of joy and longing. Um, yeah, that's really the most fascinating part of this, of this project. Um, you know, for instance, one of Beard's most famous cookbooks is uh, James Beard's American Cookery, a uh, book from 1972 that took him almost about eight years to research and write. Wow. And it's this kind of sweeping book about American food, um, lots of historical information, you know, from the 19th century. But really the heart of the book is James's own experience. The most poignant thing for me which since you live in Greenwich Village, you might appreciate, was how much um, all of his gay friends in the village, how much they contributed to the book in the sense that, you know, they had, they had all come from somewhere else. They were all basically, in a way, exiles from the small towns where they had grown up and mm-hmm. couldn't really express themselves being gay. And so um, they would bring treasured family recipes with them and, you know, cook them in a different context in New York City. Um, you know, when James Beard was at home um, uh, on Sundays, he tended to have a, a long, late afternoon brunch. And so his kind of close circle of gay friends in the neighborhood and other friends would drop in and people would share treasured recipes, you know, like a lemon cake from someone who'd grown up in a family in Texas. And so these were... Um, so, you know, James collected a lot of these recipes and put them in the book. You know, in the book, it's just sort of presented as Texas lemon cake. But right. the story is of a whole culture of, you know, this kind of great queer migration. <laughs> from yeah. No, and that was one of my questions, because so much uh, that in what we think about the queer food movement now is community. And I was wondering who Beard's intimate community was. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in prepping, I want to I want to read for listeners' sake um, an excerpt from "You and Me Together," an elegy of a queer bar uh, that I just thought was really beautiful and relevant in this moment. And you say maybe the biggest myth of food is that it brings people together, everybody sharing fellowship around the table. That food itself is an automatic medium for community. I've ground out a living in food for more than 30 years. It was never eating together around a table that gave me a sense of shared values and purpose. Because the first thing to know about community, despite all the food writing cliches of farmers markets and the CSA share and the sustainable restaurant with its own garden out back, is that it's a mutual aid pack of the threatened comfort for the trouble. Um, Community is what you make when there's a world outside that wants to hurt you to deny your rights and make you believe that you're less of a person. So, 
community community for for beard was was not this grand american table it was his immediate new family in the village yeah she, yes absolutely um you know from from a young age he found that um he could have you know if you were queer you could have a bit more freedom in a place that wasn't America. <laughs> um, so if you had the means, you could travel to, um, you know, France, um, Italy, Spain, and even though um, you still had to be careful, um, there was much less risk of uh, being persecuted. And so, um, you know, in the two decades after World War II, uh, I mean, queer life in the United States before World War II was was difficult, but especially in a place like New York City, there was more openness in in, in certain areas. Um, you know, certainly in Harlem, certain areas of um, Brooklyn, um, there was a more there was more of an acceptance that you know queer people existed and they kind of fit into the local community in a certain way. Um, after World War II, the United States in general became more conservative, um, and as it, you know, as America sort of fought the Cold War, um, strict gender roles in general um, were were very very important. You know, women were expected to um, stay at home and cook. You know, men were expected to go out and work, and um, it was all it was a patriotic duty to. Uh, live according to these gender gender roles. It showed that the West and the United States was uh, strong and moral, you know, versus um, you know life behind the Iron Curtain where mm -hmm. things got weird and you know people were weak and um, you know controlled by the government. And so um, there was a lot of homophobia and persecution of gay people in America uh, in the 1940s, 50s, you know, up until Stonewall in the late 1960s. And, but you could get some relief from that by traveling to Europe specifically. Um, and so, uh, you know, somebody like Beard would go to, would go to Paris or would go to Spain um, and he could be himself a bit more. Uh, and meanwhile, he was kind of absorbing the food culture and way of life of being in those places. And he brought those things back and kind of, you know, blended them and kind of created this um, American food culture that included those things, um, you know, putting an emphasis on food and eating um, and on primarily on uh, the pleasure of eating, the pleasure, yes. which was, you know, central, you know, it's central to traditional life in France, um, but never really was in the United States. No, that's one of the things I love about this book. It, the recipes are not, they're confusing for cooks. I think that aren't that aren't great cooks there's no ingredient list um, everything is in a paragraph sometimes if I'm lazy I might skip a step because I wasn't paying attention but he includes with almost every recipe a side dish and a salad and a dessert <laughs> he does wine pairings and he doesn't believe in one pot meals you always need to to be surrounded by by pleasure by food yeah well you know at the you know, the same year that the casserole 
uh, cookbook came out in 1955, uh, also saw the release of uh, a book that Beard co-wrote with Helen Evans Brown called The Complete Book of Outdoor Cookery. Um, and when, you know, he was great friends with Helen Evans Brown, who was a wonderful uh, food writer and cookbook author who lived in Pasadena. Um, and they became very close uh, after 1952, and so they wanted to collaborate on something. So they had the same agent, and so he sold a book to Doubleday, um, and outdoor cooking, you know, rotisserie cooking, barbecuing was all the rage at that moment in the early 50s. So they wanted a Beard-Brown collaboration. Mm -hmm. And when they were writing the proposal, uh, the outline for the book, you can see like Helen Evans Brown's ideas being very specifically about, you know, cooking outdoors, uh, you know, grilling, smoking, all that kind of thing. And, you know, James's are just like extravagant, like elaborate. You know, they included, um, you know, he took the idea about outdoor cooking, you know, had this very Catholic sense of outdoor cooking. So it's not only, you know, cooking around a barbecue, but it was also, you know, if you threw a fancy garden party and wanted little, little finger foods and sandwiches, um, all, all that kind of thing, you know, Helen, yeah. Finger and, sandwiches in the woods. <laughs> kind of, yeah, exactly. And, and also um, things to pack if you took a car trip, you know, so that you could have, you know, wonderful lunches and snacks on the road. Um, so this casserole cookbook, he was, he was really free to kind of express his own personality. Right. This really wide view of what food surrounding a casserole might be. Um, and of course, that, that was his charm. Um, and he was writing at a time when kind of uh, individuality and a personal voice was something that cookbook editors didn't really want. Um, right, they, they wanted board and recipes. So the other thing before we wrap up, I wanted, uh, I, I did a bit more digging into your writing and um, read your uh, Pulse nightclub, where, we, um, where can we find a queer space after Pulse um, essay. And, and again, kind of Beard is in the village in a bubble. You're in the Bay Area um, as well. And my people come from Florida. <laughs> uh, and particularly uh, Okeechobee, where you oh. had... <laughs> right, so you're writing about going to the first Pride after this horrific event and then traveling via car and you stop at Light Seas. Yes, where they but, have... What's what's the slogan on the cooter? Eat eat more eat more cooter. So <laughs> I saw that, and I you know I may be uh, one of the few food writers out there that's been to Light Seas. I have not eaten I have not eaten cooter though, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and then, are you familiar with um, with Ernie Mickler's work? Uh, yes, right, white trash. Yeah. So, and he writes about Cooter as well. And also, not, again, cl closeted I, as a southern as a southerner and as a writer, I think that uh, white trash cooking is a classic um, kind of peek into Americana. If not, you know, there's nothing about his sexuality on the page. But and I mean, the, he had a very kind of complicated identity. Um, you know, at that time, like moving. You know, he moved to San Francisco. Um, from the south and so it was kind of these in a sense separate worlds right 
that, that that generation knew, you know, that you could, you know, you could express, you know, your queerness or a certain part of yourself, your sexuality in a place that wasn't where you grew up, you know, that wasn't where your family was or where you had the strongest roots. And, you know, there's, there's, there's great freedom in that, but of course there's a, there's a cost, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, you know, alienation and being cut off from the things that you loved. And so kind of the wonderful thing about a book like White Trash Cooking or, um, you know, some of the recipes that come from James Beard is the, 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 the kind of poignant pleasure in recreating those traditional things in a different setting, you know, in your adult life with your chosen family, <laughs> you know, in a city probably, um, you know, away from, from the place where these things took root. There's, you know, there's a lot of joy and sadness in that experience. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and, and you got to tra traverse the South here, and and that wasn't a great experience for you. It didn't sound yeah. like. I mean, it, it meant something, but it, it it was scary at times. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, um, you know, I grew up here in the Bay Area, and so I have, you know, I I'm not so used to having that experience where you're in zones where you have to put on thick armor and then you can take it off and you're some, someplace else. You know, I've had, had, the, had the privilege of being in a place where I could pretty much be myself my whole life, um, you know, and, and not have to think about, um, you know, wearing, wearing armor just to be mm -hmm. safe. Um, so it was a, you know, painful experience in certain ways, very, very, um, very instructive. Um, you know, I felt like I was in touch with uh, a queer culture that, you know, as I say, I've, I've kind of had the privilege of not really having to, having to know. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, in these months ahead, you're, you're releasing the book in October? Yes, October 6th. Yes. What, what's the plan? How, do, how, does one, um, <laughs> how does one sell a book without uh, book tours? And I don't know, and I think my 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 publisher, Norton, um, is also working on figuring that out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there'll be lots of, lots of talks like ours, mm -hmm. um, lots, of, lots of things online. Um, yeah, I don't know, even if, um, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, independent bookshops mm -hmm. will be able to come out of this okay, uh, intact, more or less. And that there will be venues for um, authors, even online opportunities um, with independent booksellers to, to talk about books. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know what to expect, but I'm not, you know. You can't I'm, worry about it, so. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not even really thinking about that yet. So um, I think, you know, having, having, having a vigorous online presence will be, um, will be great. Yeah, and are you working on anything, or are you taking a, 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 a are you taking a break? Uh, I'm writing some 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 other pieces, and I do have another book brewing, but nothing you know something I've just shared with my agent so far. Right. Um, but yes, there is a book in in the near future, um, and yeah, for the moment I'm taking a deep breath. When when the pandemic sort of hit, I felt a little bit. Um, uh, unable to really focus on doing that much writing. But uh, yeah, in the past month, in the past few weeks, I've been able to, um, to, to focus on writing again, so, which has been great. 
Yeah. And, and what food writing matters now? That's my, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a hard question. Um, You know, as I said, when I, when this started, you know, I, I feverishly started to cook, you know, posting things on Instagram, these kind of elaborate things that I made. And then, and then all of a sudden that didn't feel quite right. Um, You know, as, as kind of news of economic toll um, hit, and I just felt like, you know, this is a moment not to, for me, not to feel like, you know, I'm showing off because I can sort of, you know, spend, spend three days making a dish. Um, but really to think about what, what, I, what I value, um, you know, in, in my own family, which is my husband and I, um, and, you know, how much we miss the family we can't see and the friends that we can't see. Um, and really thinking about how much of that life was conducted with, with, with food. Um, and uh, so it's, yes, it's a moment to, to really think about what's important. Perfect. Thank you. This has been, this has been wonderful. I'm so, I'm so glad we got to talk about the book and an actual authority on the casserole cookbook. If not casseroles, you didn't grow up with casseroles, I assume, in the Bay Area. I, yeah. Um, I had, we had a couple, like my mom would make a, make a few, um, they tended to be like, like leftover casseroles, uh, Okay. you know, like clean out the fridge, mix it with macaroni and ground beef, uh, and bake it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for joining and, uh, and I look forward to getting the book when it comes out. Yes. I can't wait to, to, uh, to show you. And before dinner, I just wanted to take a minute to explain cooter. Maybe not what you were thinking. It is turtle, deep fried freshwater turtle that is served in the South. It's dinner time. Lentils, ham hock, hot dogs. Texturally, it feels right. It's really good. It's really good. I thought about putting hot sauce on the table, but I don't think it needs it with the mm-hmm. sour cream contrasts a little red beans and well not rice, but the equivalent of like what you would do with the beans or red beans and rice. Yeah. All the meat. Those lentils are really nice. They're almost they kind of pop in your mouth like caviar. Thank you, Rancho Gordo. Yeah, approved. It really was a great pot of beans with just a hint of James Beard's Frankfurter flair. I promise, it's a culinary bomb we all need right now. You can read more of John's work on john-birdsall.com and the man who ate too much is currently on pre-order set for release on October 6th. Please support independent bookstores and please, till we meet again, keep it creamy.